I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending September 6th. Xilinx just released one honking huge field programmable gate array. We'll discuss why anyone would need an FPGA more than one and a half times bigger than the previous biggest. The political protests in Hong Kong have repercussions for the nearby technology hub of Shenzhen and for the electronics industry at large. Netflix just debuted a documentary called American Factory that examines what happened when a Chinese manufacturer of glass products for the automotive market tried to open a plant in the U.S. The goals of the Chinese and the Americans were clearly aligned, but both groups held expectations they never discussed with each other, much to everyone's sorrow. We stand here today uh, with a plant that's closing, but I'm extremely proud of the people that work in this plant here. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home, we lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. We'll get back to our review of American Factory later in the program. First up, Xilinx just introduced an FPGA that is the largest ever made by a good margin. Since FPGAs are often used as stand-ins for non-programmable ICs, each time the chips they stand in for increase in size and complexity, FPGAs grow in size and complexity too. And of course, that's true of the new Xilinx behemoth. But it appears that now there might be new markets, possibly bigger markets, for large programmable devices. Sally Ward-Foxton wrote the story that appears on our website, Here she discusses it with international editor Junko Yoshida. So Sally, it looks like Xilinx recently announced a humongous FPGA. What are the most notable features embedded inside this FPGA? Well, the most notable thing about it is it's huge. 35 billion transistors, 9 million system logic cells. They've smashed their own world record by a factor of 1.6. And they've gone from the 20 nanometer to 16 nanometer process node in the process. This is big enough to fit 16 ARM Cortex-A9 cores on it. In terms of features, 2,000 user IOs with 1.5 terabits of DDR4 memory bandwidth, 80 28 gig high-speed transceivers. Basically, it's big. But really, why does an FBGA need to be this big? The product line manager for this product, Mike Thompson, told me there absolutely is a market need for a device this big. Its primary application, as you might expect, will be for emulating ASICs and SOCs so that software development can begin before the silicon is produced. He also said that ASIC and SOC design starts in certain areas are getting bigger and more complex all the time, particularly for wireless chips like for 5G, even to the point where you'd have multiples of these huge FPGAs connected together to prototype one design. Some emulation and prototyping services are moving to the cloud and big FPGAs are useful there. One of the reasons is to allow startups to access these resources and then they can quickly scale up when they need to. The high transceiver bandwidth is useful if you're developing high-end test and measurement equipment for emerging standards, which is its other main application. You can also use big FPGAs to develop complex algorithms, perhaps for artificial intelligence, video processing, sensor fusion. I understand FPGAs are commonly believed that it's good for prototyping, but not so much for real commercial products. 
I recently had a chance to talk to Forrest Iandola. Um, he's a CEO of DeepScale. DeepScale is a startup developing energy-efficient deep learning technology for the automotive industry. During the interview, we somehow touched upon the topic of FPGA, and he told me, all my friends back in school used to tell me that I was too naive to think that FPGA can do more than prototyping. Look, today, you can't find an autonomous vehicle without an FPGA in it. So Sally, do you think the market around FPGA has begun to change a bit? If so, how? This emerging field of AI and machine learning is affecting every area of computing, every application. It's going to be massive and everybody wants in on it. In the FPGA's traditional market, ASIC emulation and prototyping, they might have had a lot of customers, but the volumes are still pretty low. So a new application that could potentially result in high volumes looks really attractive to FPGA makers right now. Because AI is still emerging, there's still a lot of research ongoing into developing new types of neural networks, and the computing workload associated with these networks is changing all the time. It's a moving target. This is where FPGA's flexibility comes into play. You can reprogram the hardware if somebody invents a new type of neural network that's more efficient or more accurate for that particular task. In an autonomous vehicle, the algorithms that do things like image processing and sensor fusion are still being refined. While this might have been done in software in the past, using AI in a real-time application like autonomous driving is so compute-intensive that you need hardware acceleration, hence the FPGAs. But you could also see it as an extension of the development phase, I suppose. Is an autonomous vehicle on the road today still effectively a prototype? Going back to traditional uses for FPGAs in years past, it wouldn't be uncommon to find an FPGA in the first generation of an electronic product to be replaced by an ASIC or an ASSP further down the line in a second generation of the product that would be sold in higher volumes. Using an FPGA helped get that first generation of product to the market quicker. Is this what's happening with autonomous vehicles? Should we expect to see FPGAs lose those sockets to ASIC type accelerators further down the line? Much further into the future, when autonomous vehicles are becoming more mature, we'll get the inevitable drive to reduce cost, and cost is one of FPGA's weaknesses. If you have multiple FPGAs in a vehicle, I suspect there'll be a drive to design those out as quickly as possible from the cost perspective, but it will be interesting to see how this story develops. Look for Sally's story on the Xilinx FPGA at eetimes.com. Hong Kong is part of China, but it was once administered by Britain under a nearly century-long lease. And because of that background, it is almost as much a Western culture as it is an Eastern one. Several weeks ago, the mayor of Hong Kong, who is backed by Beijing, introduced legislation that would allow the extradition of criminals to China. Citizens of Hong Kong are wary of Beijing, and the measure drew massive protests. The mayor pledged to suspend the legislation, but did not withdraw it. Protesters weren't satisfied with what they considered to be a half measure. If the legislation wasn't withdrawn, then it could be revived at any time. Now, this is all political, but it has ramifications for international trade in general and for the electronics industry in particular. Hong Kong is one of the great ports of the world and is one of the key gateways for trade between China and the West. One of the biggest beneficiaries is the city of Shenzhen, which has grown into a major technology hub in part because of its proximity to Hong Kong. It's only 17 miles away. Hong Kong and Shenzhen 
have helped each other thrive. All of that is being threatened by the protests in Hong Kong, or perhaps by Beijing's desire for the extradition legislation that sparked the protests in the first place. The conflict compelled Beijing to take some uncharacteristic steps last week. International editor Junko Yoshida was in Shenzhen, and she filed a report you'll find on our website. I caught up with her in Dallas, Texas, earlier this week, to ask her what exactly is going on, how the protests affect the electronics industry, and where it all may lead. So, Junko, you were just in Shenzhen. Yep. Uh, tell us about uh, what you were doing there and what you saw. All right. Um, I was there for one week, and mainly I was there to... Uh, attend a conference by uh, SAE China, SAE meaning Society of Automotive Engineers, and they had a conference, and I moderated uh, uh, one of the panels. But um, another reason was that I wanted to spend some time with uh, Aspen Core's editorial team uh, in Shenzhen. So I had a really good time, actually. Excellent. Now, um, this was news to me. I can't. It's it's sad to admit how ignorant of of uh, geography I am. Um, I just learned that Shenzhen is just like 15, 17 miles away yep. from Hong Kong, and uh, the 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 relationship between the two cities. There's a there's a strong economic relationship there. Yep. Um, it might be useful to take a look. We wanted to take a look at that relationship. It might be useful to to stop for a second and just uh, give us a brief history of Hong Kong okay. and, and what uh, how it's set up economically and politically and a brief history of Shenzhen and okay. how it's set up. Okay. Let's start from Hong Kong. Well, to set the stage between Hong Kong and Shenzhen, as you said, it's mm. very close. You can take a ferry, you can take a metro, you can take a bus. I actually know of uh, an engineer who works at Intel, and he actually commutes to Shenzhen from Hong Kong every day by a bus. So this is like going from like, you know, uh, Long Island to uh, to Manhattan, right? Yeah, or from San Francisco to Mountain View. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very close, and close... Enough, and uh, both cities enjoy a um, certain level of autonomy from Beijing, and that's an important thing. We're going to stop a moment here. In the original recording of this podcast, I incorrectly characterized the relationships among the UK, Hong Kong, and China. The point was merely to remind listeners that there was a relationship among the three. Here's what actually happened. In 1898, Britain signed a 99-year lease on Hong Kong. That lease elapsed in 1997, after which control of Hong Kong reverted to China. We pick up with Junko explaining Beijing's strategy for an orderly transition in 1997. They didn't want to do this, you know, sudden change in the culture and society so that they made an agreement, okay, uh, we will keep this, what they call, one country two systems policy for the next 50 years. Now, um, that means that this system was supposed to last until 2047. Mm -hmm. And here we are, people in Hong Kong are feeling that uh, more and more control from Beijing 
is um, coming to Hong Kong and they feel like they've been lied to. They mm. thought that this would last, you know, for a long time. And yet um, there's a more stricter, well, the, the, the legally speaking, you know, they enjoy mm-hmm. the, the independence in, in terms of some legal systems mm-hmm. as well as uh, economic autonomy, right? They right, feel right. like they're losing control. Right. And so this is kind of a, a, a that always had sort of a free market economy yep. in Hong Kong. And uh, that was actually an advantage even to Beijing for a while. Right. Uh, the proximity when they set up Shenzhen as an industrial center. Right. They gave Shenzhen a little bit of extra autonomy as well. Definitely. And the two kind of complemented each other. That was a It was a nice economic gateway from west to east. Oh, definitely. And actually, it was 40 years ago that uh, Deng Xiaoping created this, you know, brilliant idea, actually, special economic zones. Mm-hmm. And Shenzhen is one of the coastal cities that belong to this special economic zone. And what it is, is that the, the cities in those south uh, coast of China, um, they were able, to, they are actually encouraged to bring in foreign investment and uh without really asking for permission from uh, Beijing. <laughs> so, and, uh, right. So they've got some autonomy to go right, ahead and free take market, the initiative, right? right? Yeah, free market economy, you know, so on and so forth. So, right. And then really, as you said, proximity to Hong Kong was really advantageous for Shenzhen. It was not in the middle of nowhere in a big country, mm-hmm. but it's so close to Hong Kong. So a lot of foreigners, Westerners, felt comfortable to be in Hong Kong and then invest in Shenzhen. That was how it worked out, yeah. Right, right. And Shenzhen is home to Huawei, some other big industrial companies. Huawei and Tencent. And, yeah. uh, and DJ, D, DJI, the, DJI, uh, the, the drone, drone company, company right. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's got a reputation as if, you, if you're looking for, um, for engineering talent, right, right. if you're looking for investment opportunities, yeah. Shenzhen is now the place to go, and that's right. And because they can, they can tap uh, kind of a Western economy right next door in Hong Kong. Excellent, yeah. It's a it's nice a symbiotic relationship between right. the two, right? But yeah, and then at the same time, what's new here? Actually, just last month, Beijing made an announcement, really out of blue, that um, you know they essentially doubled down on Shenzhen, saying that we're going to support Shenzhen to be even more prosperous so that anybody who is in the business of, uh, say, 5G, AI, communications, and other, you know, the top um, sort of popular uh, technology sectors, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. those who invest in Shenzhen will get the generous support from Beijing, which is kind of surprised, you know, surprised many people in China and I met with one of the entrepreneurs. He said, well, that means I could get a free office space in Shenzhen <laughs> and maybe a couple couple of million dollars investment. So this wasn't entirely out of the blue, though. It's, it's in conjunction with the protests in Hong Kong, yeah? That's correct, yes. But that nobody saw it coming because Shenzhen oh. was always an independent city right. so that they really never asked Beijing to do anything for them. They were just doing fine without Beijing. But suddenly Beijing says that we're going to bankroll Shenzhen, right? Right. So uh, is 
could that be seen as kind of a hedge in case things in Hong Kong really go sideways? If things really get bad there, if the protests um, impede, uh, you know, economic activity, is that Beijing saying uh, to Shenzhen, uh, no matter what happens 50 well, miles away, well, you'll well. be okay? Yeah, that's what you and I think. Right? That, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you talk to the uh, people in China, they would say, no, 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 no. Beijing never really meant it. They made it Beijing want both Hong Kong and Shenzhen to thrive. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. I think the, the, real, the, real, the, the real intention is that they want to protect Shenzhen. They, the last thing they want is for the protesters in Hong Kong. This whole thing will catch fire in Shenzhen. They want to have that uh, divide here, right? Right, right. Yeah. And we we know that uh, a lot of electronics industry activity mm-hmm. goes through that port of Hong Kong. Yep. And is already being disrupted from time to time, with especially when they shut down the airport, port. for example. Right. Um, there are ways around it. Uh, our colleague Barb reported a little while ago. Right. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, right? yeah. And Barb actually said, which is interesting, Barb Jorgensen said that it wasn't really, the problem wasn't just the airport. The fact that land transportation, mm-hmm. the road to the airport was blocked. No. And that was really, that made the business very difficult for yeah. many people. Yeah. So uh, looking forward, um, can we expect? Uh, things to calm down in Hong Kong and for Shenzhen and Hong Kong together to keep prospering? Well, that's the um, most um, uh, major press is saying, right? They Mm -hmm. make it as though, make it sound as though October 1st, that's when the the birth of the uh, uh, People's Republic China, that's they're they're celebrating 70th anniversary in October on on October 1st. Mm -hmm. So they expect that Beijing would make some kind of move to make sure that uh, they can celebrate the uh, this day peacefully, right? Without any dissent. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, what I heard from some people in Hong Kong while I was in Shenzhen is that they're actually more worried about what would happen after October 1st. Mm. You know, people may you know, stop demonstrating before October 1st, but that doesn't mean that... The, they're satisfied with the present situation. Right. So things could really get sour after October 1st. So we don't know. Well, we'll uh, we'll send you back to China and report on it, right? <laughs> sure thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Junko. Thank you. The day after Junko and I recorded this conversation, Hong Kong's mayor offered to officially kill the extradition legislation that sparked the protests in the first place. It remains to be seen what the effect will be. It is possible the action will mollify some or all of the protesters, but other protesters, for them, the withdrawal of the legislation was too little, too late. We'll all have to see how this plays out. The name Detroit used to be synonymous with the automotive industry, with the industrial might of the United States, with American prosperity. As the automotive industry went global, Detroit dwindled, and along with it, so did the prosperity of dozens of nearby towns and cities that fed Detroit with parts and technology for motor vehicles. 
So in 2014, when a successful Chinese company made known its intention to set up business in a former GM plant in Dayton, Ohio, and bring back jobs, both Chinese and Americans were thrilled at the prospects. And yet, despite everyone's desire to have the business succeed, it all began to turn sour. There's a new documentary called American Factory that chronicles the great expectations for this project and the even greater disappointment it ended up being. Editor George Leopold reviewed the documentary for EE Times. He discusses the film with Junko Yoshida. Hi, George. How are you? Good, Junko. Good to be with you again. It's kind of unusual for EE Times to publish a movie review, but I found this new documentary, American Factory, too close to home especially for those of us who cover the global electronics industry and who have been to China. I myself just came back from Shenzhen, and I was also pleasantly surprised to see that uh, this movie is already creating a buzz among my Chinese colleagues as well. So tell me, George, what is this movie all about? Well, it's about a Chinese company that's uh, they're one of the largest automotive glass makers in the world, Mm. and they decide to establish a plant in near Dayton, Ohio. It's an old GM plant that was closed in 2008. Okay. And uh, it's called For You. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Big company. They come in, and the the, the laid-off workers in Dayton are thrilled. They think this is going to be great, and there's a great deal of hope and optimism when the plant opens, but as I note in my review, things go down pretty quickly after that. So it's really uh, a very vivid account of the culture clash between you know, China's view of manufacturing yep. and the American view. The I think the American view is evolving into something called advanced manufacturing, where you know humans fix the robots when they break down and recalibrate them. Whereas the Chinese, are, uh, it's just sort of, uh, uh, you know, repetitive motion, production, 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 and the two things don't seem to match. Interesting. And the, and the, and the documentary vividly uh, shows this. I think one of the uh, things that you said in the story is that the, the movie itself is, uh, was sort of unsettling to you. Tell me that, that what did you find most unsettling? Well, I uh, just I think just that the two systems, you know, uh, uh, the Chinese form of state capitalism and and our sort of more entrepreneurial form of capitalism, although it's also uh, it's pretty cutthroat, as the people of Dayton found out, they ended up in the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the two didn't seem to match, and and the thing that struck me was that. Ultimately, neither side trusted, and I and I hesitate to say side, but I don't think that the Chinese and the Americans didn't trust one another. They both considered themselves superior to the other, oh. and uh, push comes to shove, and Chairman Cao, the owner of Foyu, declares that you know if a union comes into the shop, I'm closing up, and there's a union drive, and Foyu well, hires a a labor consultant and probably spends a million bucks uh, to to keep a union out of the plant and ultimately uh the union vote fails and in the and you know they they're playing hardball with the union organizers so uh it it got pretty uh it got pretty nasty uh but you know the, as as we noted in the story 
uh, for you since been cited by the Labor Department for all kinds of safety violations. So it's sort of a, it was sort of a, a, a classic case of an unsafe workplace. And, you know, the, the Americans have some rights here and they asserted them. You know, it's sort of interesting that you would think China being a socialist country, that they actually don't want the orcas to be unionized. And uh, so it's just, what is the thing about, I think the phrase you used in your movie review was the quote, unfettered capitalism meets Chinese state capitalism. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, our our form of capitalism uh, involves uh, if, if uh, the, the company's not making money, you're out on the street, right? Yep, yep. And then you got to reinvent yourself. I think you, you may have more job security working for a Chinese firm, but you don't have many rights. <laughs> uh, and, and the film, you know, they, they do go to, 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 I think it's Fujian province is where the company's based, and they show the, the headquarters, and there is a union, but it's ah. only a union in name because it's pretty much run by the party, by the Communist Party. Ah, okay. Uh, so, uh, so they've got all the trappings of, of uh, a union and, and solid worker solidarity and all of this stuff. But the fact is, you know, Chairman Cow is making a lot of money off the sweat and labor of workers who were getting like maybe two days a month off, and they had to meet their production quotas. And uh, one of the guy, one of the, one of the most compelling characters is a young Chinese worker, who's been who's going to be in Ohio for two years. He misses his family. He's uh-huh. got scold marks on his arms from being around these furnaces, oh. and he makes a curious comment. He says, "I really am, admire Americans because they can go out if they want and get a second job. We can't do that." He thought that that was a, a, a sign of worker freedom in the United States, but. <laughs> I think somebody in the U.S. with two jobs would would have a different interpretation of that. But it was an interesting right. view, and the and the documentary is very good at showing the Chinese point of view, not just the Americans and the yep. American workers, and sort of the hard ass American managers that have brought in to run yeah. the place, who eventually yeah. get run out of the plant because they're not making their quotas. Interesting. So, upshot. Do you recommend this movie to other people? If so, why? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a window into what's happening on the ground. This is ground truth. It's 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 beautifully shot. It's they they got people to to really open up. Uh, they 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 quote one of the managers as saying he's going to go after Senator Sherrod Brown with the scissors he used to cut the <gasps> ribbon with because he dared to mention union in in, in the grand opening speech. And there's a very compelling scene with Chairman Cow at the end. He's walking through his palatial uh, estate, and he admits that he he misses growing up poor in the in a simpler time in China, and he misses the crickets and so forth. So it's they they really got these people to open up. Yeah, and it's a it's a, a very worthy uh, thing to watch. I would say so. American Factory. Uh, Michelle and Barack Obama's production company helped yeah. produce it, and it's uh, it's on Netflix. It's worth seeing. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Junko. American Factory, a documentary directed by Steve Bogner and Julie Riker, can be viewed on Netflix. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for: this week in technology history. The first anniversary we have this week brings us back to. 1977, when Pioneer 11 became the first satellite to fly by Saturn. 
It was built to make it to Jupiter, which it did, but after it arrived there and completed its Jovian mission, it remained in good health, so NASA sent it on to the next planet. On September 1st, 1977, Pioneer 11 got within 13,000 miles of Saturn. It discovered a previously unidentified ring and two new moons, one of which it found by nearly hitting it. NASA could have directed Pioneer much closer to Saturn, but the agency wanted to practice using the planet's gravity to slingshot the satellite even farther away from Earth. The space agency had sent Voyager 2 chasing after Pioneer 11. If all went according to plan, Pioneer 11 would be flung into empty space. Voyager 2 would be able to perform essentially the same maneuver, but get taken on a trajectory that would have it pass both Uranus and Neptune. Pioneer 11 officially exited the solar system in February of 1990. The final signal from the craft was received in November of 1995 from more than 4 billion miles away. On September 3rd in 1995, Pierre Omidyar added a few pages to his personal website where he could auction off whatever junk he had lying around. He called it Auction Web. The first item anyone bought was a broken laser pointer. The guy who nabbed it was a Canadian whose winning bid was $14.83. Omidyar contacted the buyer to make sure he understood the item didn't work. In an emailed response, the buyer informed Omidyar that, quote, I'm a collector of broken laser pointers. And thus, the company that would soon be renamed eBay was born. Also on September 3rd, this time in 1982, that was the first day of the first US Festival, which had been bankrolled by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. It was three days of concerts alongside a technology expo. Among the performers were the B-52s, the Talking Heads, the English Beat, the Police, Fleetwood Mac, Nirvana, and Santana. Waz was asked about the US Festival a few years after it was held. The finale was very moving for the people on stage, everybody, you know, singing songs, you know, starting with Give Peace a Chance, a lot of jamming between the various musicians. Uh, it was very memorable. On the website, we've got some links to some of the performances from the concert series, including a great set from the Ramones. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending September 6th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.